Hello and welcome to The Fandamentalist, the fandom podcast investigating all aspects of geeky media. Sorry, did I hit my head and wake up in patriarchal bullshit land? Don't put me in charge! It certainly worries me to make self-defeating mistakes out of fear of appearing weak. You were right. We are from different worlds. That is a failing indeed, but I cannot love it. Welcome to the I Disappoint Dad Club. The theme song you just heard is Good Riddance by R. Soner, available on the Free Music Archive. My name is Kylie, and here with me today are Gretchen. Hello! Julia. Hi, everyone! And our very special guest, Lucifer Means Lightbringer, LML, of the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast. Hello, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. It's our pleasure. We're so excited. Definitely, definitely check out that podcast, guys. It sounds amazing, first of all. Uh, Hey, I actually listened to it, and it's awesome. Hey, I've listened to a few episodes to prepare. I do homework. (laughs) <laughs> a, a, uh, compliments on audio quality are readily accepted. I am a big music nerd and audiophile, so I'm always I mean, glad people... Clearly, our fans aren't that concerned about audio quality, so... I try. I try so hard. It's not my fault that Julia's still using a snowball. That I that I mailed her. <laughs> or that I was using a gaming headset. Yes, we all know this. Well, you that can I lead a, out for her. You can lead a podcaster to water, or I guess a mm-hmm. snowball, a melted snowball, but you can't make him drink. <laughs> Nope. Symbolism, baby. Symbolism. Yeah, we could make them close the window. Sorry, just some podcasting passive aggressiveness. So Fine, today's- I'll go close the window. Jesus, it'd be hot. This is going to be great, you guys. Yeah, I'm sorry. It might be hard to keep things on track with me around. Uh- hey, we get in the weeds very well on our own. This is just going to be like four people who are like, wait, what are we talking about again? Yeah, I'll, well, I'll do my best to keep it under control. And we do have a very special episode planned to you, oh, planned for you because of LML's expertise. We're going to be talking all about themes and symbolism, uh, basically why we love them and how themes factor into adaptations. You know, are they more important than essence, tone, characters, all that kind of stuff and just general conversations. And then we have a fun segment just crammed right in the middle where if we could choose one piece of media that would perfectly explain our culture to aliens, what would it be? <laughs> Following on are just like purely ridiculous, like fun segments like we did last time. I liked time. the Disney babysitters, whatever. <laughs> it's what happens when my brain just gets weird. We are first like going to begin with our fandom news segment. Uh, Comic-Con is going on as we speak, so it's kind of an yeah. exercise in futility to stay very, very current. Yeah, SDCC is just, and this year, I think especially, is just like absurd with the amount of like news coming out. Yeah, I... I honestly feel like it's an instant panic attack zone now, just with how big it's gotten. I don't know how people actually attend it. Yeah, seriously. Uh, I don't. However, there's there's some pieces of news that are bigger that came out maybe a little bit before Comic Con, or or just- we or that we care about more. Yeah. <laughs> To be perfectly uh, honest. So the first thing we care about is Batwoman is getting a TV show on the CW. Uh, mm-hmm. We already knew that she was going to be in the crossover for DC TV uh, in December. But she... Well, it's at least... The TV show has been suggested, uh, 
Caroline Drys is the show runner. It hasn't officially been greenlit yet, but the CW put out a casting call saying they have a preference towards a lesbian actor. Uh, they do seem interested in keeping her military background and don't ask, don't tell, which I'm not sure how that's going to work because they also said a 25 to 29 year old actress is suitable and you have to be at least 30 and over to have been affected by don't ask, don't tell. So I don't know. Maybe Apparently just homophobia drove her out of the military. It could I mean, be that. They're also open to, um, I think, um, various ethnicities yes yes um, open ethnicity casting call yeah, it's an there's open been ethnicity. zero mention officially of her being jewish but like that's just asking for a lawsuit in a casting call so mm. i'm gonna try not to read too much into that we'll see what happens around the holiday episodes it's oh god it's gonna be as bad as felicity isn't it i'm gonna be so annoyed <laughs> i don't celebrate christmas can you guess why <laughs> oh my god and yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll keep watching it. I'm super super nervous for this character to be adapted. If I'm being honest, because mm-hmm. she's very in tied into Berlanti production company and DCTV is DCTV. We have mixed feelings about Berlanti productions. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of DCTV. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, they're getting in on their own streaming service now too. Of course, everyone everyone gets their own streaming service. <gasps> Isn't Netflix trying to be like, we are the only streaming service or we will go under? It was like, I mean, maybe. I kind of support that because it's just really annoying to do this all piecemeal. Yep. Because I mean, you're like, paying like six to seven dollars a month per streaming yeah. service. I mean, like now the CBC, like it's still free, but they want me to sign in, which is really annoying. Like even that <sighs> is just like too much for me. <laughs> oh, but uh, anyway, they're, um, like all of their like films, like, already aired like films or television series from what i understand are going to be available to rent or purchase on their new streaming service they're also going to have five original shows three of which are going to be like uh live action uh titans which is apparently like dark and gritty oh my god the trailer is like super super dark and gritty (laughs) like robin says fuck batman which there are there are like there are Robins that could have said that, but probably not Dick Grayson of all of the horrible, Robins. Horrible tweet where someone was like, "When he said fuck Batman, I don't think this is what he was meant." And then it just has a oh, gif no. of Babs fucking him from the Killing Joke, <laughs> which is just terrible, and no one should ever reference. But. No, no don't talk oh. about the Killing Joke. Okay, um, but they're also doing Doom Patrol and Swamp Thing as live action. We're getting two animated shows, uh, Young Justice Outsiders, and then Harley Quinn, which I'm excited about Harley Quinn because Batman the Animated Series was one of my favorite cartoon mm-hmm. shows when I was yeah. a kid. Charlie. Yeah, and I mean, Harley it just, it is just a amazing. good show. Like, there's no two ways about it. Right, it really was. Yeah, mm-hmm. Wait, best there's Batman. Also, there's also going to be access to a massive comic book library for your TV. Do you watch TV on your TV? That's weird. Do you have a TV? <laughs> well, we have like a thing that we run our computers off of sometimes. Well, I yeah. guess you could you could uh, hook the streaming service all like on your iPad and maybe read comics right. on your iPad. That'd make a little bit of sense. Mm-hmm. It was just yeah, when I when sad. I was looking for the news, like the image was literally of someone sitting on their couch with a TV, with, like scrolling through comic books. I was like, but who? Who's gonna do that though? Yeah, but, but yeah, no, it's pretty. I'll just like stand in front of my TV reader. Well, Gretchen, I tell you what comic I would read on a TV is the new Shuri comic, which is oh written my gosh, by I'm Sci- so excited. Yeah, actually, Gretchen, why don't you just announce it because you're like I'm literally so jumping? I'm literally yeah, I'm jumping up and down. So Shuri from Black Panther has been announced to have her own comic book line, and it's going to be written by Nettie Okorafor, who is one of my favorite like current sci-fi writers. She's a uh, Nigerian 
author and she's like an af- queen of like Afrofuturist science fiction. So she's the perfect person to write Shuri. Yeah, this and looks this looks really promising. Yeah. It's- Hopefully she won't have that weird booby costume thing that we saw once, remember? On the Wikipedia oh. article. Remember oh. that? Ooh. Am yeah. I the only one disturbed by that still? Yeah. Well, let's, let's just yeah. hope that it's an actual comic run and not mm-hmm. a mini series that Marvel is pretending is a comic run so they can <laughs> sell and then they can cancel it after six issues like they do. Gee, I wonder if you're talking about something. Oh, no, no, nothing specific here. Uh, <laughs> speaking of bullshit, apparently She-Ra, um, she's getting a show geared for like teenage girls and the redesign of She-Ra isn't sexy or something. People are mad because she's not, because she's not busty. Who are these She-Ra purists? Like who was this into She-Ra in the first place? Who was ever attracted to She-Ra? Yeah, suddenly a bunch of like middle-aged white dudes care about She-Ra. That's all I can right. say. <laughs> like they, these people probably never actually watched the original She-Ra because no. it was too girly. No. Like it was a girl show, but now suddenly they care. No, these are the people who say like things like SJW and virtue signaling, like there's some sort of Tourette syndrome. <laughs> I mean, we all know who these people are. Right. I like the uh, idea too that female superheroes can never have had a different wardrobe when they were younger like they have to have worn the exact same style of clothes of course then people wouldn't know it's them oh my god it's all so stupid i mean it's just stupid uh the the twitter handle that goes by brienne of tarth had a good tweet about it It was like Mm -hmm. oh so you know if i don't have you know shoulders if a waist that's narrow and bloody 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 then i'm not feminine okay you know like right i mean how it's ridiculous yeah, we don't need to belabor it. Speaking of stupid, James Gunn got fired? What? Well, okay, so <laughs> ten, 10 years ago, James Gunn had some... This is of Marvel. He, You probably know him best for writing and directing uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy up to this point. He 10 years ago, he had some really, really, really offensive tweets. Like, there's no sugarcoating it. They were clearly jokes but jokes in like not funny ways at all like rape jokes and like jokes jokes jokes. in the like schrodinger sense of like i decide if it's a joke if people Mm -hmm. get mad at me Mm -hmm. after the fact and about two years after that he was called out for it and publicly apologized and you know said that he was reflecting on it and really trying to be a better person Mm -hmm. marvel hired him sort of in spite of all this having happened already he's built the guardians to what they are what we know now this seemed like it was settled and You know, Guardians, while it's not perfect, if you look Mm -hmm. at the work that he's done, it does actually seem like this is a guy trying to not be part of the problem anymore and grow from it. And like all of Guardians 2 was not very subtly a swing at like toxic masculinity, basically, and coming back from that, Uh, which again, it's I'm not saying it's like perfectly done in in any way. There's still some kind of like weird tropes in it, especially with Mantis's scripting, things of that nature. Uh, However... The alt-right troll, or Nazi troll, whatever you want to say, because uh, it's the same thing, Mike Cernovich, <laughs> who is the wonderful conspiracy theorist that came up with Pizzagate, has been going through sort of like attack campaigns and bot campaigns against very outspoken liberal Hollywoods, uh, Hollywood figures mm. who are pedophiles, which I'm using air quotes. I, I Hopefully that's in my tone. And they just targeted James Gunn for these very, very old tweets, and Marvel and Disney responded by firing him. So I think, like, Hmm. there's some nuance to this, because, like, yeah, James Gunn's tweets were disgusting. Like, there's absolutely no reason to be defending it. But at the same time, this is also giving, you know, really 
just bad faith actors mm-hmm. a huge boost for basically these targeted campaigns. It's all, it feels like it's almost falling for the bait because they're establishing morality that they have absolutely no interest in following themselves. Exactly. Mike Cernovich has tweets that were like, it's, it's physically impossible to rape a woman. Go try it. So like, it, it's not like this guy has any genuine interest in anything. No, he's, he's no. a horrible, horrible person. One of the worst. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, I'm, I'm worried about the precedent this, sense like i don't really particularly care that much about what it means for guardians of the galaxy 3 in a void like i would rather mm. that the person with this with the one vision for the trilogy continues it but i understand why like you can feel it's inappropriate i just think even if disney was looking to cut ties with him like even if there's other factors going into it by them capitulating at the same time mike right. cernovich is the one launching this attack it's just mm-hmm. it's it's not a good look and it's i'm worried about what it means like moving forward totally so. yeah that i mean makes it makes me sense. question disney's and marvel's or whoever's good faith too just because like everything like in the industry as a whole it's like so selective the way <laughs> they the way that like they choose to respond to this me too thing like fucking johnny depp is still having like, still in movies like what and, and being <laughs> and being let out on stage at Comic Con, like yeah, and, and but like I mean, I, I'm not saying that like this was the wrong decision to make, like given his tweets and everything, but just like I I've stopped believing in anyone's good faith in this entire thing, and well, it's upsetting to me. Disney yep. tends to just sleep, sweep controversy under mm-hmm. the rug, like they pretend Song of the South never existed, for instance. <laughs> Like things like that. So it's not like Disney has this wonderful history. And if they really want to like go off about stuff that happened 10 years ago, like, you know, clean your Mm -hmm. own damn house. But you know, it is what it is. That's, that's the piece of news. And, uh, I, I think it was kind of a bad, bad call there. Okay. Let's go to some good news. Uh, Gail, yeah, Gail Simone has been named the chief architect of the intentionally diverse Catalyst Prime superhero line at Lion Forge. Um, and one of their mission is creating comics for everyone. And this is like really, really big news because she's a really, she's not, she's super talented. She's really thoughtful. She creates, she's a great writer. She makes really good stuff. Um, so like giving she's also her a like giant Twitter troll, but we love her for it. Right. But like troll in the way that like Mark Hamill is a troll. Oh yeah. She trolls like Elicity <laughs> shippers on arrow. She's not like a bad guy. Right. No, she's just like, she's like chaotic neutral troll not sure. like chaotic evil troll or true yeah. evil so that's pretty exciting um i guess we'll just like go real quick um most of these are things that i'm excited about so i'll just yeah. go through them rapid fire, rapid I mean, fire. we can't go right we can't go quick through the tv universe news i'm, I'm shaking right. in my boots like doc so doctor who trailer looks awesome mm-hmm. yes really excited about the new series like chris chip like chris chibnall says that jody whittaker's doctor is going to be like a beacon of hope um, which is great. Um, I feel like he's very intentionally trying to do the opposite of what Moffat has been doing the last. Who was <laughs> promised a dark and gritty Doctor Who? <laughs> uh, with Moffat, but yeah, it no, mostly was. So honestly, the thing that excites me about this trailer—I've never watched Doctor Who. I kind of feel like I could just jump on with this and not go back through a hundred thousand Doctors. It's very and- intentional. Yeah, that, that's happened about five times. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chibnall has actually yeah. to that series so many times. Chibnall has actually said that he's trying to to basically give it like a a place where people can jump in if they've never watched it before. So that's exciting. Uh, we'll do Steven Universe last because probably most of us have to say about that. Uh, Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, I'm really excited about the next season of Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, me too. Um, Spock is coming uh, as well as Commander Pike. We're getting uh, the original number one from the Enterprise, who is played by Rebecca Romine. Um, I've missed like, her. Where's she been? <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, <laughs> well, she's back. Well, like, apparently, um, like, it was hard getting even her getting the original, like, number one in the Star Trek TV series because, like, women can't have high-ranking roles like that, which is why she's only in one episode and, like, her mm-hmm. time is apparently cut. Um, and uh, Dr. Colbert is back somehow. We don't know how, but I'm excited because I love Colbert and Stamets. They're great. Mm-hmm. Um uh, this season's gonna sync with canon. I'm mad because we don't have any no- news about uh, Philippa Giorgio, who I love, but I don't I know what. Oh, she'll be back. She'll be back. Don't worry. They can't <sighs> not have her back. We, I know, right? She's so. We'll great. have her back like the Daleks until you don't want her anymore. It'll be great. I could never want. I could never not want Michelle Yeoh. Wow. Um, uh, Star Wars news: We're getting a Padme young adult novel written by E.K. Johnston. Maybe she'll uh, have a character. She's going to. It's going to be about her transition from queen to senator. And that sounds really exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. People go over the dating rules. Yep. And handmaidens. Like, we're getting more handmaidens, which who I love the handmaidens. Um, Claudia Wait, Gray. Wait, is another one? Is one of them going to be Kira Knightley again? I don't. You can't have her in the book. In the book. <laughs> her name will be Kira Knightley. Her name will be Kira Knightley and a handmaiden. Okay. Um, my Kira, other favorite. But it's going to be spelled Q I apostrophe R A. Yeah. Kira yeah, Knightley. Yeah. Who would do something that's stupid? <laughs> this isn't like 90s fantasy anymore, you guys, where we just like throw in apostrophes. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, yeah. Claudia Gray, my other favorite Star Wars author, mm-hmm. is writing an Obi Wan and Qui Gon novel, which is going to be great. And we're getting the rest of Star Wars The Clone Wars. Maybe they'll all have characters. Yay, more Ahsoka. All uh, right, final final piece of news real fast. Steven Universe. Steven Universe <gasps> at SDCC. I'm freaking released, out. They released a teaser that was just White Diamond's eyes. They're pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, on the, the, the day of recording, we have not seen the episode yet. Yep. Apparently, no, it I might think we haven't seen it yet. Tonight? Mm-hmm. Maybe? But then they aired the full episode. It stars her and Centipedal. Yeah, Santa, Santa Petal get no. Oh, I was so excited about Santa Petal coming back. Oh my gosh! And Steven Universe is also confirmed for like four more seasons. So <laughs> and they're getting <laughs> they a movie. Arrive. Yay! And I'm they're so getting excited. a movie. Anyway, uh, the next time you hear us recording a podcast, there will probably be like fifty other pieces of news because we'll be very behind because Comic Con is mm. still going on. So there's that. We are the queens of scheduling. We are also the queens of theme. Ooh. So with the that, transition. let's transition into our first segment. <laughs> so bad, I'm sorry. <laughs> it is a woman. An angry Jewish lesbian woman out for justice. So I chose themes and symbolism as a topic because if you are not aware, if if those of us who are listening are not familiar with LML, um, he is well known in A Song of Ice and Fire Circles for his work on the mythical astronomy of ice and fire, uh, which is heavy duty analysis about symbolism. Since I am also a huge fan of symbolism, this is my favorite podcast for A Song of Ice and Fire, I figured it would be great um, if we're going to have him on to talk about like symbolism and shit. So, yeah. Okay, now let's and be honest. Like let's be honest here. This is really all about Gretchen getting herself onto Between Two Weirwoods as a guest. That's okay, what this that is about. was not my intention. What? <laughs> you jerk i didn't do yeah. that on purpose and that's also right. your that's your favorite bonus. you mean your second favorite because clearly your favorite song of ice and fire podcast is unabashed book snobbery oh that's true yeah mm-hmm. there's, there's <laughs> which i've in, already been on <laughs> hey there's room in gretchen's heart for more than one podcast <laughs> it's true favorite is like a class not a single 
one. It's like a best friend. Yeah, and honestly, okay. I, I only have positive things to say about pretty much all the A Song of Ice and Fire podcasts. I've gone to very long runs during uh, Radio Westeros, for instance, and those mm-hmm. have been very diverting. So yeah, I think in great. general, this is this is a pretty like smart fandom. I enjoy it. Uh, it's when you yeah. get into the Game of Thrones only fandom that things sort of start to change a little. I have had some good experience um, cross sort of cross networking with some more show centric people. There are some good folks doing uh, oh, yeah. sh- show oh, yeah. stuff, but of course, um, you know, anytime you go into the comments thread of a show based thing, it's, it's a different world entirely. So <laughs> yes, that's, that's more what I meant. Um, especially the forums, uh, the westeros.org boards right around the time that the shows are on and there's a very different population that is participating. It's just, it's its own thing. But uh, I guess t- if I can jump off really quickly, speaking of the show, uh, you know, LML, aren't themes for eighth grade book reports? Why do we care? <laughs> Why do we care? That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the first things I tell people about my podcast, and I'm like, oh, I've got a podcast about the symbolism and mythology that's sort of lurking in the background of A Song of Ice and Fire. My next sentence is usually like something along the lines of, and that's really interesting because the symbolism <laughs> and mythology in the background of the books actually is paralleled in the main characters in their most important scenes. And so there's this parallelism between myth and and the main figures that once you uncover makes the books a lot richer. And it's so like what's providing... your favorite example of that. Oh, mm. well, um, probably the, the one with Daenerys, uh, waking the dragons at the end of a game of thrones. Um, so she's called her, her and Drogo have these pet names for each other, right? So Drogo calls Danny the moon of my life. And, uh, <laughs> Danny calls Drogo, uh, you know, her son and stars. And so Martin hangs these labels on them, you know, son, king, and the moon wife. And then he tells you this story about how the Dothraki actually believe that the sun and moon are gods and that they're man and wife. And then we get this other story about one day there was a second moon in the sky and it wandered too close to the sun and it cracked from the heat and a thousand thousand dragons poured forth and drank the fire of the sun. And that's why dragons breathe flame. It's this totally wacky sounding fable about dragons coming from the moon. But the thing is that the idea of a moon wandering too close to a sun is recreated at the end of the book when Danny hatches her dragons because she is a moon figure and she lights Drogo on fire. So it's literally the fire of the sun, his funeral pyre. Then she walks into it and that's when the dragon eggs crack open and dragons are born. So it's like this recreation of the myth uh, that she heard earlier in that book. And and then it ties to Danny's character because seeing herself as the mother of dragons is really her lifeline during her first book when she's basically being abused and and raped by and sold into slavery. Uh, she gradually turns the situation around to her favor by embracing this inner dragon nature that she has. And so it's not only symbolism and magic, but it's also like the the heart and conflict struggle of the character that's being looped into all this as well. So it's it's all it's a nice interconnected fabric right right because then it like her being the mother of dragons then like shapes her arc moving forward even after Mm -hmm. that whole scene like she like that's her like coming into her own power and seeing herself as someone who is capable of leading on her own without needing you know to follow after drogo and so yeah totally shapes her character moving forward too 
So that's yeah. why, because because that's a, so that's a great question. Because when I tell people, oh, I've got a podcast about mythology, it's like I can hear people's brains turning off. Mm. Like, oh, you're a big <laughs> a big nerd who talks about really boring stuff. You're like, no, no, it's not boring. I swear. So yeah. the world of ice and fire must have been like a giant treat for you when that came out. Yeah, well, so I actually started podcasting about six months after that came out. That was when okay, I started yeah. getting really into deep analysis. And yeah, it blew everyone's brains open. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And then they told us the art wasn't canon and we're just like, mm. but the Rhaegar was so hot in it. <laughs> most, most of the art, most of the art is, I don't know if, I mean, canon's a whole debate, but yeah, George, exactly. George did a lot of art direction for that book. So a lot of it is supposed to be pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. And he even talked about certain ones, like the Iron Throne is the one he always talks about. You know, right. he says the one the on the one. show is way too small. This picture in the book is more like it. It's this, you know, 30 foot high monstrosity. Right. And meanwhile, the one on the show, you can get like decent toilet decals for your bathroom wall. That Yeah. <laughs> and, no, my favorite one with the, like the Iron Throne is like, there's these scenes where like Joffrey is reclining on it and he has like his legs over the, <laughs> you're just like, no. <laughs> So let me kick it. Let me kick it back to you guys. Mm -hmm. What I just said about a song of ice and fire. Does that remind any? Excuse me. Let me just do that over again. Of course. (laughs) So let me just kick this back to you guys. Um, Did what I've just said? Does that remind you of any movies or books or like your favorite media? Can you think of something that you've watched that has some sort of mythical parallel thing going on like that that enhances the story? Does that remind you of anything or? Uh, I mean, I'll say Steven Universe is one of the other, show, at least current running, like, television shows that I think does a really good job paralleling um, the kind of, like, larger mythology with, like, the current run of the characters and also things like foreshadowing. Um, I was watching a couple episodes last night where um, I hadn't rewatched them since the current, like, big, huge reveal. So just just so people know, this is where, like, spoilers are – Fair game. We can say whatever we want about anything about whatever it's the show. It's been two weeks. I mean, come right. on. <laughs> um, so, Steven Universe, but like even like A Song of Ice and Fire. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, if T-Wow comes up, we'll mention T-Wow or anything that's been revealed. So, when when they had the big pink diamond reveal, um, I went back and I when I was watching a couple episodes last night, like I had moments where I was like, ooh, right, that and that and that. There's a song where um, it was Sadie's song was one of the shows that was on last night where – Sadie is singing this song and she's supposed to like participate in this like citywide, um, like not real talent show, but kind of like a talent show. And she decides not to. So Steven sings her song instead. And the song, one of the lines is, haven't you noticed that I'm a star? And there's at one point during the episode where like you cut from a night sky with like stars that look like diamonds. And the most prominent one is a little pink diamond as, and it cuts from that to Steven singing. Haven't you noticed that I'm a star? And you're like, Oh, right. Because the stars are diamonds and Steven is pink diamond. Like, <laughs> right. and so just creating that little parallel brings the character into the stars and the stars down into the character. And it just makes right. everything more just bigger and more grand and more right. magical in a, in a sort of subtle way. And Martin very much has mastered that quality oh, of, yeah. you know, parallelisms. Right. And I think what excites me about it particularly is like how much intentionality there is there, especially Martin's work, I think is the most steeped in it I've ever seen any piece yeah. of media that i can think of yeah uh but it's, it's funny uh lmo because when you asked that question my mind immediately went to the one instance where i was actually burned by looking for all this stuff because mm. 
I was really engaged with it, and Julia's laughing because I think she knows what I'm going to oh, say yes. already. It's lost, where I thought, oh my god, there's so much meaning, there's so many symbols, I'm going to analyze what they all mean, and the statue, and like mm-hmm. the smoke monster, and all of this. And as it turned out, it was just stuff J.J. Abrams thought was cool and mysterious, yeah. and they never had a plan for it. So that's, so. A, that's a great point. So th- the thing is that all the writers and myth makers uh, in the history of the world have been developing this collective cultural lexicon that we have. A flaming sword, a maiden mm-hmm. in a tower, all these things, a lady in a lake. There's all these symbols that mean stuff and they've accrued meaning and associations through time. And so if you as a writer... Don't steep yourself in that knowledge. And then you go around and throwing these elements in your story. It's almost like you're speaking a language you really don't understand. It's like when my parrots copy my speech. They don't, they only, they don't really understand. I mean, he understands a little bit of context. I do. I've got lots of parrots. Yeah, I've got four. (laughs) They're small though, not big ones. But I thought you said parents, and I was like, yeah. "Are you speaking oh. very millennial esque?" No, 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 no. Bless my like parents. Memes? My parents are great. No, parrots, little birds, birds. little bird, little talking birds. But uh, you get the so, point. So though. my it's... first, mm-hmm. go ahead, Julia. My first thought when you asked your question was his dark materials, which is kind mm-hmm. of like takes you know a story you all know and kind of inverts and challenges it in a way. And like, we, we're talking about, you know, stories we all know and archetypes and things like that. I mean, like these days, like the height of sophistication is more to always question them and do something interesting with them rather than just simply echoing them. Sure. Mm. And Martin does do that a lot. Oh, yeah. You know, like, all like, you know, if, you know, thinking about the maiden in the tower, like there, I can think of like five or six ways off the top of my head that he plays around with that trope. And I could think of five or six maidens off the top of my head that he's stuck in a tower. <laughs> but this happens a lot. Yeah. Sometimes the maiden is actually a knight. You know, so let's, sometimes. okay. So let's actually, let's, yeah. let's, let's rock with that one. That's a great one. So Sansa, yeah. I was just writing mm-hmm. about Sansa last night at like three in the morning. Cause I've, I'm so I've been, excited. As one does. Episode. <clears throat> yeah. I've been storing up all the Sansa veil stuff. I've been setting, it's so massive that I can't like just dip into it. So I've been setting aside. But I love it. In though. any case, so Sansa, one of the rumors about Sansa after the purple wedding, when she sort of unwittingly helps to kill Joffrey, is that uh, Sansa supposedly climbed up to her tower and turned into some sort of wolf with bat wings and flew away in the middle of the night, okay? So this is taking the maiden jumping out of the tower to commit suicide idea, but turning it into a transformation instead. And that fits with Sansa because when she leaves King's Landing, she changes her name to Elaine Stone. She goes into hiding. So it's very much like a character metamorphosis moment. And and so this this sort of... It's uh, it's given to us as like a rumor that the small folk are passing around like, oh, yeah, I heard she turned into a, a winged wolf with bat wings and flew away, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's he Martin uses those little folk tales to add more symbolism to this moment that actually happened in a different chapter. Uh, and it's right. and it's very much an inversion of the tower trope by because she's escaping it through a metamorphosis instead of like staying in there and being locked up. Right, right. She's not throwing herself and committing suicide. She's right. But but transformation is its own kind of death, which is which yeah. creates like an interesting conversation that you can have then about like if she's if she's fully transforming like Sansa Sansa the per- the person of ca- the character of Sansa that existed prior to that event like is has died in some way because she's going to be a changed character from here on out. But like she's died, but she's 
there's still pieces of her left. So like well, death, at, death and transformation, like that fitting together is. So just... there'll be a there'll be a resurrection of her character essentially. So she's going mm-hmm. into like hibernation, but there's still that stark seed that's always within her. Right. And that's the importance of the snow castle scene when she builds Winterfell and then stands inside it, and then she's strong enough to confront Peter. Um, right. So that's... She um she hears a wolf <clears throat> also as she's descending yeah. the Erie. Yes. So it's it's definitely so strong, but the the snow castle scene is possibly one of it, I think it's one of Martin's best written chapters. Oh, in general, absolutely! It might be my favorite. Yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah. outstanding. There's so much yeah. going on. Oh and yeah. This is also why uh, feast dance. I know that that one's uh, Storm of Swords, but feast dance is my favorite, or feast for crows specifically is my favorite book. Feast dance being also a dance with dragons because that you know continues mm-hmm. on for a mm-hmm. lot of it. But that sort of death yet pieces of identity remaining is consistent across almost every point of view character with uh, very few exceptions. Okay, right. so this gets into what you said in the outline. You're talking about themes and adaptations, yes. right? So is it more important to like grab the details or the theme of the work? So right. Martin has a challenge because he's got like 41 POV characters, okay? And they're all doing different things, and he's constantly putting you in different people's heads, and it's a lot to keep track of. One of the ways that he makes the the novel feel unified is by having so many parallel themes. You can yeah, compare right. Sansa and Cersei and Danny, for mm-hmm. example, in a lot of ways. You can compare yep. Bran and Danny on their little psychedelic sort of journeys that they go on. <laughs> you can compare John and Brienne in a lot of ways. There's just all these parallels that happen in the book create a rhyming and a resonance that holds it together. And it's right. an absolute necessity with that many plots and characters. Otherwise, it would be terrible. Right, right. Because like I just finished... Um my sci-fi novel and i only have three pov characters but still like oh well thanks so like i was having to try and do the same thing with three characters in one book which gave Mm -hmm. me like a huge appreciation for what martin's doing with the number of books that he has and the number of characters he has and his world is bigger than mine like i have like one colony on one planet and three perspectives on it, not like mm-hmm. an entire like multi-continent, like multi-character. Yeah, it's it's really impressive how he does it and and ties it all together. Yeah, because yeah. like Danny what- and John too are like they've got like right. yeah. huge parallels with Danny and John. This was one of Julian my. Uh, oldest episodes of Unabashed Book Snobbery, but it was a Cersei Lannister show. I think that's what we called it. And we tried to just list all of her literary foils within A Song of Ice and Fire. And it was like every character, especially every female character, um, and the way that she contrasts with that, too. Yeah, my favorite parallel is always the way that the Lannisters parallel with each other and contrast with each other. Yeah. And how they're like all really the same people and they have these like tiny little differences that like really make all the difference in the society they live in. Right. And Yeah, I comparing think- Cersei to Tywin is fascinating. Comparing mm-hmm. Cersei to Jamie is fascinating. Yeah. Yep. I think I think my favorite example it this is more of a contrast to but this ties into how Martin uses imagery and symbolism is everything regarding the northern chapter in A Dance with Dragons where there's the ruins of Winterfell that the Boltons are trying to rule out of Mm -hmm. and they have that sort of like snowbound with a murderer thing going on and there's just internal resistance, external resistance and sort of like the north almost rejecting them. And I think it just just creates this wonderful atmosphere and sort of this building tension where like, this is why we're very frustrated Winds of Winter isn't out yet, you know? Yeah, how about Ramsay and Jane's wedding? It's like... You've right. just been taking in all of the, like, the most, probably the most horrible abuse in the entire books, what Jane gets from Ramsay. 
Um, I mean, anything Ramsey does to anyone is, is right up there, I guess. But right after that, and in the context of that, as well as all the political intrigue, you get this magical wedding scene in the Winterfell Godswood that's poetically beautiful and tragic at the same time. And the juxtaposition there is just outrageous. And it's all yeah. coming through yeah. Theon's POV, too, which adds another crazy layer to it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, what you made me appreciate, LML, was really how much the symbolism with John and Theon, like, interconnect with each other. Because I I very much resisted enjoying Theon in his early chapters. <laughs> um, yeah. Just because he, he's an, he's cause an he's asshole. A, cause he's, yeah, because he's an asshole. Um, but, like, and I appreciated him more, like, when I finished his arc, but I had never fully connected him and John and still I started listening to your podcast and was like, oh, wow, there is such strong, like, symbolic resonance between John and Theon on so many levels. And it's fascinating because then, like, reading Theon helps you see where John is going. Like, I think in the early chapters, like, reading John helps you see why Theon feels the way he does. Like, I think because John is more immediately sympathetic, like, reading John will help you get into Theon's Mm, headspace a little bit more, I think. Like, at least I find Theon more sympathetic having read John. Like, like, because they occupy similar spaces in the Stark household, Mm -hmm. being the like outsider who's not who they don't really belong, but like they want to and they think of themselves as belonging, so they have that internal tension. Exactly. Um, But then now seeing where Theon has gone can start to see where John might go. I think psychologically too, because one of a big part of Theon is that he's a changed person, having gone to the symbolic land of the, having like died himself and had his own transformation and returned to the world. Like he's a totally changed person. Um, and I mean, you think this, I think we all think this, John's not going to be the same person when T-Wow comes. No. And he won't be exactly like, you know, bedraggled old man Theon, no. but there, there are like what we were saying, <laughs> the thematic parallels are there to show you where some of that arc is going. And what's right. interesting is that Theon, uh, in one of those Winterfell chapters, he looks at his gray skin and thinks, oh, I'm a Stark at last because, you know, the, the, the gray sigil of the direwolves. Yeah, and, uh, right. and he's got white hair and gray skin. So he's like, oh, gray and white. The thing is that he's also paralleling this ironborn hero called the Gray King who had gray skin and his beard was as gray as a winter sea. And there's a lot of clues about the Gray King having a tie to Stark mythology and history so at the same time that theon's like oh i look like a stark he's actually naming himself the gray king which is an ironborn figure so it's he's you can see he's it all both. coming together yeah, yeah exactly yeah how he's- much stock do you put into all the sigil stuff and the characters being reflected <laughs> in their family sh- sigils in some way oh the sigils are a field mine of symbolism yeah. yeah martin hides a ton of stuff in there and martin's really big into heraldry i mean he collects mm-hmm. those figurines and he knows a lot about heraldry so even it's though definitely... there's a lot of color on color going on <laughs> <laughs> yes there is and usually it's important mm. but well, I, I, I think people do take it too far sometimes but you're definitely right. So yeah. people, a lot of people take it too far because they're grabbing, they're seeing little micro connections without understanding the greater context. If I could mm-hmm. be so condescending as to say that, I guess. <laughs> but there is a wider our show. Never. <laughs> there is a bigger, you know. There's a ton of parallels and connections and things 
but if you interpret them out of context, you can end up with strange theories. The golden rule is just to run any tinfoil theory by a narrative sense. Like, does it make sense with the narrative? If not, that's probably not right. You know, I'm going to yep. take that and cross stitch it. Uh, <laughs> Let's make a t-shirt. I think in it, I was going to say in general for this segment, I think one of the bigger takeaways I'm having is that A Song of Ice and Fire really is about <laughs> the most dense with symbolism and themes as I can think of for literature in general. Right. Uh, but th- I just wanted to quickly touch on something Gretchen said, because you were talking about the symbols and the parallels and how that could be sort of indicative of where John's going. So for a lot of people that don't do thematic analysis or don't care, like, is that why you're so engaged with it in terms of the predictive nature that it can have? I was or is ask it something the same else? Question. Were I you love really? you, Kylie. Yes. I love you, Julia. <laughs> is that a question for, for Gretchen or me? For it's you. a question for the group. So LML, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Um, so I can you re- can you can you refine that question for me? Are you primarily what I'm getting from you, Kylie, is are you are is Thematic and symbolic analysis primarily interesting because of predicted value, or is that something for you? Yes. For yeah. you, or is that like a secondary, like bonus feature? That That's can... a secondary thing. Uh, definitely secondary. Right. Um, in fact, uh, I have to remember to make predictions <laughs> because people want to hear them. I forget <laughs> about them entirely. And I'm just humming I don't like along. Them. Yeah. To me, it's like the it's the context from which the characters emerge. So if you're just right. reading the story and reading the characters without thinking about their yeah. sort of symbolic and mythological context, it's just like you're just not getting the whole thing and there's yeah, more so to if, enjoy. So if George R. R. Martin yeah. got hit by an ice cream truck and he never finished The Winds of Winter, you wouldn't think you were wasting your time. Basically. Oh, definitely not. No. <laughs> yeah. no, no. I would say, Kylie, from what you said... Although ice cream trucks slow down and stop for George, but go ahead. <laughs> I was trying to, I, I was trying to like you know think of something that's impossible, so I'm not actually like doing any voodoo on him. Okay, totally, um, totally. Yeah, that is I impossible. Would, I would say maybe maybe this has resonance for you, LML. I would say one of the other texts for which I would say this is true would be um would be like the Bible and a lot of other mythological texts. Like, and that's the thing. Like, this reads a lot like, um, to me, it reads a lot like the Bible because I think the Bible is, because the Bible is a collection of stories told over centuries and even millennia, Mm -hmm. that it has this like accrual of symbolic meaning even within like itself as a connection. Mm -hmm. And like my background is in, um, biblical text analysis. Um, Mm -hmm. so like when I think about a song of ice and fire this way and like start approaching it this way, what it reminded me a lot of was like, oh, this is what I do in my, my did in my like text classes, like with like, (laughs) with like biblical text was like, oh, right. Like these verses in Isaiah connect symbolically to these ones in Isaiah and like, because they're it's a collection of stories that are all drawing on the same symbolic language. And Martin, I think, reads a lot like that, except it's not a collection. Like, mm-hmm. he created his own symbolic language that he's then, like, imbuing in his stories. And not a lot of writers, not a lot of single authors go into that kind of depth. Go into that kind of depth. Because you, you have all these, like, systems within right. the world. Like, you have, you know, the northern system with the symbolism of the children of the forest and the werewolves. You have, like, the faith of the seven. Each of the gods have their own kind of symbology behind them. Yeah, so, it, yeah, there's just layers. It's like an onion. <laughs> it makes me cry. <sighs> Gretchen, I think uh when I have you on a Between Two Weirwoods, which I'm definitely going to do, I think I might have to choose 
uh, a religion related topic because that's I was raised Christian as you probably know and I'm I know my Bible really well and I would just love to talk to you more about that. Yeah, it's so yeah, fascinating. I, I was as well. I mean, I I have one of my master's degrees is in uh, historical theology and then my other one is in like classical Hebrew language. Yeah, poor Gretchen, when, when we met up in Chicago, I said the whole time going, so Gretchen, tell me more about the Bible. She was like putting up oh, with like... me. <laughs> Everything that Gretchen and Julia just said is just making my heart go pitter-patter over here. I don't know if you can see me like <laughs> clapping through the screen, but I wrote an episode called George's Writing Modern Mythology. Yep. And that was my exact point that Gretchen just made. It's He's writing A Song of Ice and Fire like classical mythology. And of course... Uh, I've come to understand that really religion and mythology are not really different from each other. You can say that every religion has its own mythology, or you can say that religion is mythology. Um, but really it's, it's the same idea. It's just using these symbolic, esoteric metaphors and riddles and stories in order to convey deeper truths that you can't really explain in a literal fashion. And it goes along right. with a set of practices and all that. But the point is, um, George is writing it very much like the Bible in that, uh, just what you said, it's a collection of themes and stories that all tie together. It has its own internal mythology. And this, I think that George feels like this is a really important thing, just the mm -hmm. idea of symbolic and esoteric art, because like I was saying, it is the only way to transmit certain deep ideas is through metaphor mm -hmm. and parable and things like that. And the more that this is a function that art is supposed to serve in life. And so I feel like George sees himself as playing a very important role, carrying the torch of symbolic art into the modern world. And that's that's where all my passion comes from for this podcast is basically trying to seeing that George has done this, having been personally transformed by learning about it. I'm just basically trying to shine a light on it so that other people can get the same enjoyment out of the series. And like I said, even personal transformation by thinking about these things. It, mm -hmm. it causes reflection and change inside of you. So just wanted right. to get that in. Uh, thanks for those comments, Gretchen. Totally. This just makes me sad that there's still no move towards a Greek mythology cinematic universe. Why aren't people trying to make that? Well, there's, Come on. there's Thor. Come on, That's like Norse mythology, right? It's totally like that. Yeah, it's a logical <laughs> thing to do, actually. That makes a ton yeah. of sense. Isn't it? It would be awesome and popular. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. Have you get seen any of the, that? Have you seen any of the uh, Indian cinema fantasy? They're doing awesome stuff over in India. Like I have really but I amazing that stuff. Out. That sounds I'll, really cool. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 mythology in the Vedas is second to none. I mean, they have spaceships <laughs> and they have like millions of years uh, eras and stuff. I mean, it is amazing. But yeah, There's a lot please. of horse sacrifices too. Yep. There's not there's not enough drawing on like ancient Near Eastern mythology to my mind either because I love ancient Near Eastern stuff and there's just like everyone's like let's go back to it's Greece amazing. and I'm like Greece is cool I was raised studying Greco Roman th mythology but have but have you tried have you tried yeah. Canaanite mythology <laughs> I just think that was already like yeah. marketed you know <laughs> yeah. you don't have to convince people that they'd like to see Greek mythology just because we all studied it for some reason. No, it definitely makes sense if you're going to launch a movie cinema thing. Uh, but at the right. same time, yeah, there's a lot of good mythology out there. And that's why I love George is he doesn't just draw from Norse and no. Greek and Egyptian. He definitely goes into Canaanite mythology and Vedic Indian mythology and Chinese and Japanese mythology. I mean, I've found South American, Native American. I've found all kinds of stuff. But anyways. Yeah, yeah, we could talk about mythology all day long, <laughs> but we have to transition so that we can talk about aliens watching our media. So 
coming up. Speaking of, uh, is it possible that uh, these uh, <laughs> comets are actually some sort of alien spaceship? Moon is no egg. Moon is goddess, wife of sun. It is no. It is no. Let's pretend that tomorrow there is a little alien who lands on your lawn and she's like, what is up with you humans? You're weird. What is the one thing from your DVD collection or your bookshelf or whatever that you would give to her to explain what the fuck is up with us humans? Who's so, like okay, so, so this is about human culture, not necessarily like Western American culture. It's the culture that you happen to have, Gretchen, because you are... He have been chosen as the representative of the human race. <laughs> I probably so shouldn't this, be. Is this like an alien a movie analysis person? Like, do they study? Is it? Did they do alien film studies? Oh, she's and a math nerd. To, and they're trying to apply it, right? Because, like, if I'm just trying to say, "Hey, here's who we are as a people," I'd probably go with, you know, I don't know, a documentary on something. No, no, but, no, not a documentary. Right, but if they're going to like an alien nerd. It, we want we want those deep things that can only be conveyed through metaphor. So there's okay. a thematic thread from this segment to the pre- from the previous. So one. I think the best snapshot into who <laughs> we are as a culture at the moment uh, might be the Hobbit trilogy. <sighs> okay, explain that. That's a bold choice. <laughs> it's an obviously cynical cash grab. So that's like number one that kind of like gets gets that human nature out front. But then the elements that it's very clear the studio included, like, let's give Barth this family. Let's have Turiel be an action woman stock. Here's a love triangle. And let's just like extend the story so much. I think tells so much about the pressures, the way that they're trying to appeal to like literally every demographic and end up appealing to no one. Um, there's the way that Jackson was trying to push technology, but it was just like completely misfired. So he created a very nauseating film reel and like the experience of watching it was viscerally unpleasant. This is a much better answer than I thought it was going to be when it started. This is an alien. <laughs> Yeah, because I'm just thinking, like, I, I want so a, an alien. I want an alien to apply their Artur theory to this, and then like look at all of it and say, you know, here, here is what humans made, and this is what they went for. And I think it's just a, a very comprehensive look into the different powers that be. I mean, plus they they created an an elf dwarf romance while ignoring the the OG elf dwarf romance. Of of Gimli and Legolas, like come oh, on, they're totally so a married couple. That's that's the real romance. We all know that. But uh, Gretchen, what's your answer? Oh gosh, after I I have a hard time following Kylie because she's always has these <laughs> like that very, was so like, strong. I know thoughtful, <laughs> and I'm like I don't know. I think I just go for it in how I convey it, right? <laughs> Whether I've even you, convinced you, myself. Right? You say yeah, it you said this was confidence. a fun segment. You said this was a fun segment that was like way deep. We are having fun. I have fun <laughs> shitting on The Hobbit all the time. So. I, love, um, I love the answer. Go ahead. Um, I would go with a recent movie, um, Sorry to Bother You, actually. Uh, well, no. Is that the name of the movie? Yeah, it's called Sorry to Bother You. I thought you were just yeah. no. apologizing for <laughs> no. Yeah, it got See, me too. Um, no. I'm going to, because that's very much along your lines, Kylie, I'm going to go something totally different. I'm going to go Black Panther and say Black Panther, because it is 
in some ways the opposite of who we are as people in as a yes. culture right now but it says so much about the history of america at the same time um true and the way it can like we get all of the discussion of like the history of racism of colonialism of the way that like um exploitation has existed in our history and like the the way that's affected people and how people respond to that and to me that's really an encapsulation of human history has been like one in many ways cultures exp- and and groups of people exploiting each other and how do people respond to that do we use violent revolution do we use you know isolation but then it also um because I wouldn't want, like, to me, it's just I wouldn't want the alien to walk away and be like, humans are shit. Let's just blow them up. Like, I would <laughs> oh, no. want them, to, I would want to give them an honest reflection of what a lot of human history is, but still end on, like, a hopeful note that, like, humans, <laughs> human beings can be better, like, and that sometimes we are capable of being better. Um, when we and, confront ourselves with the, the reality of who we are as people, we can be better than ourselves. And I think Black Panther conveys that perfectly. I think it would also just be a a lot less, like, embarrassing for the human race to have them watch Black Panther than to have them watch The Hobbit. Right, that is is true. I'll wait to hear my choice. (laughs) Well, Elmo, what is yours? Oh, let's let Julia go. I'll go last. Yeah, all right. Well, you got to save his best for last, right? All right, so what I chose is Harold and Kumar goes to White Castle. Save the guest for last. Howard and Kumar goes to White Castle? Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, yes. So this movie came out, like, what, 12 years ago now? More? If not more. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I watched, like, the, my teenage self watched it, I was like, oh, this movie is about the immigrant experience. And I think I'm the only immigrant here, correct me if I'm wrong. But, like, I feel like the immigrant experience is the quintessential human experience of our times because even people who aren't immigrants tend to feel kind of displaced mm. in some way within their own culture. And, like, Harold and Kumar both have this conflict where, like, they feel this pressure as children of immigrants to be successful, but they find that success kind of vaguely unfulfilling, right? And the way that they choose to fulfill themselves with, like, you know, pot, <laughs> mostly, and road trips, that's also, it's, that's also kind of vaguely unfulfilling. Mm. And, like, I, I, I feel like, you know, an alien would need to understand that, like, we're in this period of extreme displacement and transition. You know, not just in North America, but everywhere. There's just people feel rootless. They feel that, like, whatever connection they have to their past, to, like, you know, where their parents come from is being lost. And the way that we're coping with that is not necessarily any better. Hmm. I'll be perfectly honest. I do not have this memory of Harold and Kumar. I just, I just kind of like remember it as a dude wears my car esque thing. You know, no, but I think maybe it's because, you know, I have that experience. I feel very displaced from the place that I'm supposed to have come from because I'm not a horrible homophobic pseudo Nazi. Uh, I'm Polish, by the way. (laughs) And Jesus. And, like, I don't, that, that sense of identification in this, like, really, stu- you're right, it's a really stupid stoner movie. But it was so strongly there. And I don't know. I'll rewatch it with a yeah, I mean, Jewish like, diaspora lens. The guy, like, he, he intentionally flunks his med school exams because he just feels that pressure to succeed because, you know, his parents worked so hard to get him there and everything. And just, like, but 
That's, I think that's where we are. Like we kind you know, of, Julia, we feel like I we're standing on the shoulders of giants, but those giants were kind of assholes. I think you and I have to have a live blog of Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. For I'm up one for of it. Our Fundamentals Plus pieces uh, coming up. <laughs> I'm up Let's for it. This. And then after that, we'll do Dude Roast My Car because I just remember that being utterly atrocious. I just remembered that the plops- popsicle was actually a penis and yep. the alien was eating it. Yep. Uh, that's, I don't watch that's these the movie. movies. All right, LML. <laughs> so <clears throat> my seri- I thought about this. I had to think about this for a minute. So my my serious answers would be, of course, A Song of Ice and Fire because it's a time capsule and it has everything in it. But that's the very predictable thing for me to say. So I'll give you another <laughs> s- a semi-serious answer. The movie Wall-E because oh, it, captures, it captures both all the great sin of humankind, but also mm-hmm. the fact that some of us feel very regretful about that. And so there's the tragedy and the sense of loss involved with like a lot of deep insights on human nature. And uh, yeah, so I, I can't really overthink it because I just came up with that off the top of my head, so I don't have a long thing about it. But <laughs> that was one I movie think, I thought of. And I think giving aliens Pixar is a good choice to be honest yeah. and then and then uh yeah totally and then um the other one is uh you know getting a little bit less serious i think of monty python and the life of brian uh because uh, there's just <laughs> i mean if you want to com- explain christianity to an alien well exactly <laughs> and comedy reveals a lot uh yeah. what people find funny just says so much about human culture so I, th- I would say that's an interesting take on it but probably the best answer would be just like a dvd anthology of the simpsons right <laughs> well, up to like season seven. Okay, well, whatever. No, but. it's still it's still a co- like continual commentary. What's going on? Even if you can say the quality's gone down a bit, like it's very current. Yeah, well, think of the classic Simpsons. But yeah, I mean, it's right. it's all in there, right? Uh, again, oh, with totally. the asterisk that I'm a white guy in America coming from a Western viewpoint, right. and this isn't representing the whole globe, but really more oh, yeah. modern Western, you know, materialism culture or whatever. But that's what I'm familiar right. with, so. I mean, even the newest Simpsons, where it's the Simpsons guy being mad at people who are upset about Apu, so then he has Lisa Simpson be his mouthpiece to voice that discontent. Like, that is still a good reflection into our culture for aliens to watch. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Definitely not as enjoyable as it right. was in the I'm still, like, years. continually shocked that the Simpsons is still on. <laughs> I, I haven't even watched it lately. I'm, I'm very Aww. much thinking of the romanticized classic idea of the Simpsons. Uh, yeah. 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 Hold on to that. Hold on to that innocence. <laughs> yeah. The Simpsons. All right. So what what would you guys think in the our listeners? Do you have anything in particular that you would pick? Um I'm especially interested to hear if there are few any of our listeners who are um non-American who would kind of offer their perspective on what from like their cultural context they would show an alien to like explain their history. Um yeah, good question. So, yeah, put that in the comments. I'm I'm really interested to hear that. Um, and then I guess we're, we'll move on to our second segment about back to themes again. <laughs> hey, there's a theme to this theme podcast and it's themes, theming themes and themes of all the themes. Um, they themed all the way to theme, Phil. <laughs> theme mobile. What kind of name is that anyhow, huh? Kumar. What is that, like five O's or two U's? No, it's actually one U. Yeah, bullshit. All right, so adapting themes over plot. If you have visited The Fundamentals before, if you've listened to The Fundamentalist, we talk about adaptations a whole lot. Uh, Julia actually wrote a piece called The Maxims of Adaptation, which was based on a very opiate-addled mind of David O'Selznick. No, it was, was meth. Right. It was meth? Oh, my <laughs> mistake. All right. 
a meth adult Selznick who is uh, talking about adapting Gone you know, Gone Wind. with the Wind, which has aged great. Uh, <laughs> but also, if anyone watches H-Bomber Guy on YouTube, I very much recommend his videos. He had a video essay on the film Outsiders, and he was talking about, in adaptation, there's sometimes like this choice of adapting themes versus plot points. What's more important with the true spirit? Uh, how do you adapt into a modern context? So he sort of talks about these maxims too, just in a, in a different way. So what we wanted to talk about is just our views on this. How much of a work's original plot has to exist for it to still be an adaptation? How much can just be themes? Is there something else, some other crucial element, like character arcs that's more important? And just, well, that relates to themes, but you get what I'm saying. So let's just open that up for discussion. Um, Okay, so one of the things that I was thinking about about this segment was, like, what happens when you adapt plot over themes like you have a story like a song of ice and fire being adapted into game of thrones where you there's a clear preference for for plot points for just things that happen not necessarily in context to like thematic arcs or even character arcs or sometimes even anything it's just like oh look battle happened that's a thing that happens in the books look what a great adaptation we've had um, yeah, Julia and I even call that the checklist effect. Yeah. So like John dying and being rezzed, I think is the yeah. best example of it because that did not affect his characterization on the show or no. anything. He just yeah. he he d- got grumpy. He had right. <laughs> he died and then he was resurrected. And what's your plan now? Get warm. <laughs> okay, thank you. And like, well, have, then you have like, the, like you know. An even more exa- extreme example of that is what happened to Sansa in Winterfell. Where, oh my like, god, that's right. a checklist. Well, yeah, that's someone. Yeah, that's a plot point they wanted to get to, and the way that they got there and the effect that had on the characters was not prioritized in the least. And right. I think we can agree that that's bad. Right, but like, what? So the question is, like, what is, what do we lose? We lose meaning. I think, like, I think if you just do plot points without... But there's also the possibility that, like, you create a meaning independent of the source material, and that's not necessarily always bad. I mean, you can end up with, like, a, a good, meaningful story in that, even if it's a crappy adaptation. Right. So the the bottom line is the character consistency. Like, that's this is where the TV show struggles, is that it has, because it needs plot points to happen, it has the characters do things that aren't consistent with either their character from the books that they've largely been true to, or even their own character that they've established on the TV. It's not even consistent for them. Right. And the two examples that you made with Sansa and John, like, these are, these are basically like, I mean, the Sansa thing was just murdering her character arc. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. and, uh, and, and the, with the John thing, it was just like passing by something that was supposed to be important with like a wave, you know, so. <laughs> They've, we've, we've nodded at the plot point, and now let's do what we want to do. And you can tell that they don't grasp what, what really is going on there. <laughs> you really, really can. But, like, what's the alternative to that? Like, right. If- I think that raises an interesting question. So if you, if, you, if you just adapt, like, plot without themes, context. without context, you, you lose character arcs and you lose um, thematic value. You lose meaning. What if you just are adapting kind of what the story means, which is what I mean by like adapting themes, like this is a story, um, H. Bomber Guy's example is um, about a short story by H.P. Lovecraft, um, where the adaptation that was made actually didn't have any of the old gods. Um, and the emphasis was more on like human beings being a source of alienation 
Because like the the theme of of a lot of Lovecraft's work is that sense of like alienation when looking out in a universe that you that you believe makes you feel insignificant or meaningless. That sense of like alienation and discomfort and terror that comes from one's own insignificance in the face of you know, an overwhelming universe. So the adaptation was true to that, but it put it in a human context without like meeting the old gods. It was just like um, a young man who was gay, like goes back to his hometown and is immediately alienated and treated in a certain way that like has him feel that same thing. So like, can you, are you really, are you doing an adaptation of a work if you're staying true to the, what the story means, but like changing up significant aspects of plot. I think that there's like, there comes a point where like, I think we see like, you know, the intellectual property of a story as being plot points in a certain way. So if you mm. have something that's thematically adapted without the plot points, like you don't really see that as the same IP. So mm. calling it, calling it like, you know, Cthulhu was kind of a weird call, you know? Right. Because people but, associate yeah. what's necessary. What's necessary of HKP Lovecraft is that you have these like monsters. People yeah, think of like have, the monsters as like you can have thing. like drastically, completely different sets of plot points that have very similar themes. Right. Is that the same story? I mean, it's not stupid to say that they're very closely related to each other, but are they the same story? I think it's. I think character arcs are the glue that holds everything together mm-hmm. with regards to adaptation. Mm-hmm. So you can have you can have truncated uh plot points, but if the character is like going to the same place and the story is trying to say the same thing, that that's what it is cuz yeah. at the end of the day the plot is the vehicle through which the character arc occurs. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. Gone did so well. Yeah, and I I actually have a piece about this that I'm trying to get to load, but I think our site's down right now, and (laughs) our admin's on vacation, so that's great. But um, I called it It's the Character Stupid, because it was a little bit based on the adaptation of Into the Woods for movie that came out in 20. 15? I'm just guessing. We were already hanging out. It was was (laughs) was recent. Yeah. Where... They they honestly neutered some of the themes of the original stage production, but it was still a very good adaptation of it, even if it wasn't as complete thematically, because the tone of the characters and where they go ended up being the mm. same. So I think it all still told that story that, at the end of the day, has that collective responsibility, even if they still kind of, you know, they, like, left Rapunzel alive. It's like, yeah. well, you're just... I mean, wh- what I'm thinking of right now is... Uh- Definitely on my top five for worst adaptations ever is the 1999 production of Mansfield Park, where um, they they totally kept the major plot points, but like the main character was basically the opposite of the main character of the novel. Is that the and, feminist Fanny? Yeah, it was like <laughs> it's, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. I'm sorry. Um, um, yeah, so like they 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 tried to like you know make Fanny Price into a feminist. If you know anything about Mansfield Park, you're like, no, that's, that's the point. She's not, she's strong in the real way, but not in a feminist way. And, and they try to like insert all these themes about like, you know, like slavery and like the oppression of women and just like, no, she's Jesus. Like, why are you doing this? And <laughs> like, but like, yeah, the plot points were there. You could, you could recognize them. Like, you know, you have the Rister Rochester and you have like, you know Mr. that ha- like all the things happen. He goes to Antigua, I think. Sorry, Mr. Rochester is Jane Eyre, isn't he? Oh, yeah, you're right. Was it Mr. Rushworth? Rushworth, no. yeah, yeah, Rushworth. Yeah, that was a weird <laughs> thing. But 
so and it it turns out to be a completely different story i then you get into the area where it's offensive because it's absolutely the opposite <laughs> like can can well, can we think of any like major like franchises where or like adaptations where like the themes were adapted over like plot successfully or just at all <laughs> really like well, I, the one that I yes. always think about as like a, an adaptation that's kind of, you know, people don't see it first, but now everybody knows about is the Lion King as an adaptation of Ooh, Hamlet. Yeah. yeah, right. That's a good one. Yeah. So there's they're they're hitting definitely some of the same plot points, but I feel like the themes are probably more important to making it so that you can see that they're a similar story. You know, mm. it's not just the evil it uncle and Shakespeare stuff. Like, a lot. Like, yeah, right. You, you, like Clueless and Emma. That's not Shakespeare. I'd idiot. probably put um, for Arthur Conan Doyle here too. Like there are yeah. adaptations. That, there are adaptations of Sherlock Holmes that aren't straight adaptations. Like it, that made me think of House, which like was one of those things that like when someone explained that to me that like oh House is Sherlock Holmes, I was like oh well duh yeah why didn't I see that before? Like it's clearly an adaptation of Sherlock Holmes, but it's not like a straight adaptation of Sherlock Holmes. They're just like it's an adaptation of the character. And certain elements of, like, themes, though I don't really know that there's, like, super deep themes in Sherlock Holmes. They're, so let me, let me point this out, okay? So yeah. the reason why you do an adaptation and change the plot points and keep the themes is because sometimes stories need to be retranslated into mm-hmm. a different era or a different idiom. Uh, so just, just so that it can be appreciated again. Um, yeah, I think that that's true of like old things, you know, like you would do that to a Shakespeare play. You would do that to a biblical story, but that's not something you would do with, you know, a comic book that was just published five years ago. Yeah, probably not. Um, however, I guess maybe when you get into like maybe some of the older characters from the sixties that they're pulling forward. Um, there's definitely, you see the, the tendency to reinterpret it a little bit, to put it in a, a context that's more relatable, right? Yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, mean that's like, a you really have good to, point. Like, you know, Fanny Price is not, she's not what we think somebody should be anymore. You know, it's, it's a problem for us that the book like glosses over the fact that Sir Thomas is a slave owner. Like, and you can't really make a modern adaptation of Mansfield Park without addressing that somehow. So. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So like the theme, the themes of Mansfield Park, just like, that's not, a story we want to tell anymore, really. Mm. I'm still, I'm still going to lean very sharply on character arcs because I think character arcs are where the messaging comes out of mm-hmm. mostly. Absolutely. Uh, there, yep. there can be themes without character arcs, kind of like Ant Man and the Wasp sort of had <laughs> themes without character arcs, but the themes was just like no, that's a good responsibility. That's a great delineation. I mean, George Martin, if you know, if you've ever heard him talk about writing, you probably heard him quote William Faulkner and say the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict. And right. I I I have learned uh it sometimes it almost seems like a contradiction between the idea of oh, the character is the only thing that's important and like massive fantasy world building, which he also does. But like I made my point initially when I was talking about my podcast, he always makes sure to tie the world building and mythology right back to the characters and their conflicted hearts. And that way, everything is consistent and resonant and it all matters. So when you're doing an adaptation, you're very right to point out that the, it starts with the characters. And mm-hmm. that's why I brought up the idea that in Game of Thrones, a TV show, 
people complain the most when characters do things that are out of character because it it destroys what we've built up and, and you know, we come to know this person and then do this thing that doesn't make sense and you basically right. destroyed their character. I mean, Game of Thrones is unsuccessful as a story because it's not even, we're not even talking about adaptation anymore with their character inconsistencies. So, yeah. I know, it's, just, it's so much easier to talk about failure here than it is about actual success. <laughs> you know, it just... Mm-hmm. Like, when you have a successful adaptation, these things just all kind of gel together and you don't... Like, you're not really separating plot and theme and character, which is, like, you know, what Martin does. You don't have to separate those things in A Song of Ice the, and Fire. They need the to most, be unified, is exactly. the idea. Yes. The most successful adaptation I can think of that focused more on plot points than on anything else was Lord of the Rings, where the stuff that happened in the books happens in the movies for the most part. I think the character arcs are sort of somewhat there, where, like, they start off and end up in the same spot. But thematically, there was a lot of neutralizing of some of it. The cutting of the Scourg of the Shire comes to mind. Uh, the way that Theoden was a lot less, like, proactive about coming out of the spell. It just became like, oh, this evil dude's possessing him. Go Gandalf with your stick. Things, <laughs> things of that nature. Um and I actually really, really do like the visual adaptations of Lord of the Rings, even though I understand that there's a different meaning Tolkien imbued in the books that is not quite there. So that's the best example I can think of. But that's also like, it was so sprawling and expansive, it sort of got boiled down to this just epic and action the epic. And I think it became it's almost like it, it's, it didn't flip genre, but it just like became a completely different different aim mm-hmm. have gretchen yeah. gretchen or any of you have you both read and watched dune yes uh, i have seen both the miniseries and the and the older video hey, i've so read the book <laughs> so what's what's and your 60 second what's your 60 second analysis on how how well the movie succeeded adapting the books which movie the, uh, the, the main Dune movie that everyone the one has with seen. Sting. The director's cut? Or- <laughs> yeah, the one with Sting. Yeah, of course. The glorious Sting steam bath scene. Oh my gosh. Uh, um, gosh, it's been a while since I've thought about it. Um, it really, really has. And I don't know, Julia, do you have thoughts first? And I can like percolate on that for a second. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I understand Dune. Like I've been thinking about it a little bit lately and I've like thinking about how I have to reread it because I really don't think I understand it very well at all. And just there's like, I think Dune is trying to be very kind of apocalyptic and end of the worldy. Like that's not, not what I'm trying to get. It's, it's, it's trying to be like kind of post post everything we understand and like humanity has completely remade itself, but is still kind of the same. Including well, the patriarchy. Think, Wonderful. Well, I think the central theme is like the the idea of deconstructing the savior and messiah trope. Right. Right? right. Yeah. But particularly yeah, in the I, books. Yeah. I yeah, don't think I, I like it. <laughs> I do think problem. that the film is hampered in not giving us more of the Bene Gesserit. And kind of what I mean it's a they have a complicated like Yeah. It's not easy to explain who the Bene Gesserit are. Uh-huh. In a visual adaptation, but it's not that, easy to explain in the book either. <laughs> like it's, but that I think, co- but like that's core to understanding like why it is that like Paul as in like the existence of Paul just like yeah. flies in the face 
of what you said that that like the messiah trope because he's like the messiah born early like Mm -hmm. and if you don't understand kind of that whole idea of like breeding for a messianic figure then i think it is harder to understand like then paul just kind of mostly becomes just kind of like more of a generic like yeah well i I think like the problem with the movie is that it had this world that was trying to adapt that was just too big for it and it couldn't quite get it's like it couldn't wrap its hands around what like but how did it do how did it do adapting the themes i guess to the point of our conversation i think like what gretchen's trying to get at is that like there's a theme of that like you know the benny jizzard are kind of trying to control you know nature and destiny and it's a very appropriate thing to be writing in the 60s and like and it yeah it did turn to be turn out to be a little bit generic where you can almost believe it's actually just about this rivalry between these two noble houses you know <laughs> like right because yeah like that theme of like the the I think I'm really glad you brought that up LML about the the messianic figure and kind of I mean all of it hinges around that because you have Paul in the Bene Gesserit versus like the relationship between Paul between the Fremen like. There are two different perspectives on what it means to be a messiah. Like, is a messiah, right. like, an yes. ecstatic figure, like, raised in the, like, <laughs> it's funny to think about it more. Like, is is a messiah, like, a John the Baptist-type figure, like, raised in the desert, eats things that make him see crazy shit, and then, like, prophesies? And basically leads a terrorist uphising, if you right. will. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and they also have the like, messiah as a political figure as well. Right, like, yeah, versus the Messiah as, like, a cold, sterile, like, political figure who's basically, like, bred for. Like, we're breeding for someone who is, like, the ubermensch, like, genetically perfect and will therefore, like, usher in a new... Ah, oh, yeah, okay, so to compare this to A Song of Ice and Fire, you can see Paul's early upbringing as equivalent to Fagon, oh, uh, young Griff, yeah. <clears throat> where he's, he's, he's raised to be the perfect prince, but in a, in a hermetically sealed environment that's safe mm-hmm. with the shields and all that stuff like versus learning, learning on the fly out in the desert by riding worms and climbing the rocks and, and eating right. the water of right. drinking the water of life right. and all that. And I, yeah, and it also has that theme of inevitability, right? Like no matter, like, no matter what you do, Paul will have that magical destiny of his. Right. And any, and any effort to kind of control it is making it even more inevitable. Right. Right. And I think that the film, I would say the film doesn't fully get that across. Cause I feel like you could watch that movie and not come away with that takeaway. Like you could watch the movie and just be like, Oh, cool. Sci-fi world with like, so it's more like Spice they adapted the plot beats and accidentally houses. took some of the meaning, but yep. you can tell they didn't really understand it because they didn't take more opportunities to I mean, build on it and make it hard. resonate elsewhere. Yep. It's yeah. hard to tell whether they didn't understand or if they just failed in adapting it, you know? Right. Yeah, I, that's I, always I, the I do question. think David Lynch kind of did understand what was going on. He was just very David Lynching everything and putting people floating mm. around in underwear and just focusing on things that maybe weren't that essential to be focused on. But yeah, no. But I and think I do that, like yeah. the movie. It's a fun movie, but yeah, it's interesting yeah. to, um, and that's why I wanted to bring it up as a comparison because it's not a terrible movie. No, it's um, great. so it, it makes for an interesting comparison. Also, in the books, uh, I feel like the author really uses the next book with, um, you know, uh, Children of Dune. Yeah, so it's like the son of Paul Atreides wrestles with the savior complex and makes different decisions than Paul does. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's meant as a counterpoint to sort of go into that theme further. But Plus I guess you have the sister like there who like functions as like that 
foil because she's more she takes on that aspect of like born as messiah because she was aware she was born like aware of all of her history so she's the like right the messiah that was born a messiah versus yeah you have a further continued exploration of those like are, is it something cool. – it's nature versus nurture. Are you born the Messiah <laughs> or, like, do you become the Messiah based on, like, your experience? And it will be interesting to see how George finishes that story with John and how he plays with his Targaryen heritage and how it's going to be relevant. Like, for me, I don't think it's going to be more about him making a claim on the throne because John's really not set up to lust after the throne. That's yeah. not a conflict for him. It's That's going to be Danny's conflict. The concept of being the rightful king is completely meaningless. Yeah. Right. So his, I have a feeling his dragon blood will be more of a magical uh, thing yep. that yeah. that'll come into play. But um, he has a magical destiny to fulfill. We all have a magical destiny to fulfill, Kylie. I will say, in general, any adaptation where the themes are not of interest or not there i always find really suspicious because it's like why do you even want to adapt this work if you don't care what it's saying why why do you only care what happens floating floating space worms dude (laughs) yeah like um but no i will i'll stick by i'll stick by my declaration of character arcs above all else i mean that's the thing about character arcs like they need plot and they need themes that's what they are of course. Right. So, of course. Because a character yeah. arc isn't going to make sense if you understand what is trying to be said. And a character arc also can't happen if you don't adapt what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like, Ulysses, the, you know, but... the, the plot is the vehicle. The character arc is where you're heading. And the themes are like what you see on the way in the scenery and all that, I guess. Well, it's what it's yep. to me like That's the, a great the, analogy. the themes are like what what that journey means. Yes, exactly. What is it's the journey? Why, why is that journey significant? Why is it important to tell this story? What are you trying? Your to motivation say? for getting in the car. The themes okay. are the book that you write after your trip. Uh, this is a tortured analogy. <laughs> uh, let's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna cut it there because, yeah, we've been we've been going for like an hour and a half at this point too. Hey, that's uh, short so, for some of our podcasts. That's that's true. We could always talk more about themes and certainly mythology and the Song of Ice and Fire. It's really short if you listen to some of LML's podcasts. Which are long, but excellent. I love them. Yeah, I, I try really hard to keep them at two hours, uh, but it's a challenge sometimes. <laughs> oh, we understand. We understand. We, we we discovered that you can cut podcasts in half, and it changed our lives. We just arbitrarily have halfway yeah. <laughs> podcasts. We're like, boom. I can't do it. it. It breaks my heart too much, because I'm yeah. building this sort of crescendo of ideas, and I'm setting one up to setting another up so I can put them <laughs> together at the end, and I just can't break that train of thought. No, yeah. I get it. No, it's it's not good practice on our part. Yeah. We just do it. Well, no, it is. The shorter shorter media is always more readily consumed. I mean, that's yeah, golden rule. That's true. So, all right. Well, huge huge shout out to LML for joining us. Thank you so yeah. much. We hopefully could have you back at some point too, or possibly on Unabashed Book Snobbery. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about the mythology of Game of Thrones and how it's been handled. Yeah, that that sounds right up my alley for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, definitely, definitely check out the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast. It is an excellent listen. It makes your workouts that you did, uh, I don't know, let's say 45 minutes before recording this podcast go very quickly. Oh, yeah. So, yep. And just real quickly, uh, you could find, obviously, the podcast on iTunes is called Mythical Astronomy, but all of my stuff's at luciferMeansLightbringer.com, which is what LML stands for, and my YouTube channel, which... Uh, has more views than subscriptions, uh, strangely, is also called Lucifer Means Lightbringer. So if you uh, stop by there, check out some videos. I got videos from Con of Thrones, all my podcasts, some live streams, lots of guests. 
And make sure you hit subscribe so you'll be notified when I do another live stream. Because sooner or later, you might see <laughs> someone like, oh, I don't know, Gretchen Ellis popping up on uh, Between Two Weirwoods or something. So, oh, you my know. God, Gretchen. You did not tell us this. <laughs> Am I supposed to say everything? Oh, yes, absolutely. You can also check out uh, Gretchen Joy and my writing on thefandamentals.com, assuming that we can figure out why it's down at the moment. I'm sure it will be totally fine. Uh, and then... Oh, and I will say, we will provide links to all of LML stuff in yeah. the show notes. So, Oh, for sure. There's also a piece I wrote about a movie with no themes, a movie with no character arcs, a movie with no plot, and a movie that didn't have any of them. The new Jurassic and Park that- movie? <laughs> uh, no spoilers. No spoilers, but this is for our new tier of Fundamentals readership, Fundamentals Plus, for $3 a month. You can subscribe to us and get exclusive content from editors, which uh, is like editor podcasts, pieces, some kind of uh, live hangout thing. Gretchen did a YouTube video. We also have a shout out for Fundamentals Plus, yeah, don't we? Yeah, we do. Thank you, Kara or Kara. We don't however you pronounce that we don't know and it it changes on supergirl so right exactly but (laughs) we're really excited thank you for signing up for our subscription hopefully you are enjoying the content that we released this month and we will have more coming next month it's a it sounds hokey but like literally every subscriber makes a difference at the station we're at so for three dollars a month if that sounds reasonable to you uh sign up for fundamentals plus we've got a link it's through paypal it should be really really simple you'll really like the next thing we're doing Yes. Uh, Julie and I are explaining a Game of Thrones episode that Gretchen has never seen before to Gretchen. These are always fun because I have zero context other than the books. And so this one is, uh, I think we're going to do season five, episode four. Sons of the the Dave Hill Hill delight. (laughs) I'm, I am excited. Yeah. Our last, yeah. yeah. If you want to hear me like talk for 40 minutes about Janelle Monet and Dirty Computer and her science fiction writing, then. Yes. Definitely sign up because that was what I did because I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> All right. So check that out. Definitely check out LML's writing and YouTube as well. And that that's about it. Thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you guys next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. See ya. It's just just our theme song yeah. simulation there. Oh, I'm, I'm digging it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we'll even say the quotes. How about my desk? You know what? Griffin's not mm-hmm. here. I'm taking his desk chair real fast. Do it. It's so much more comfortable. There's lumbar Pay support. the iron price.